0: Well, if you know the Rolling Stones, that was funny. If you don't, it wasn't. But I love the Stones, so it's funny to me, because I I grew up on rock and roll. I mean, I grew up on, don't judge me now, don't judge me. I grew up on Led Zeppelin. I grew up on ACDC. I grew up on the Rolling Stones. I grew up on the Beatles. I mean, when we didn't have food in our house, which was rare, but when we didn't have food, we nourished ourselves with rock and roll. I mean, I love rock and roll, and some of that stuff is pretty popular stuff, right? I mean, the Stones and the Beatles and whatever, but I I know the obscure stuff, too. I know, like, Alvin Lee and 10 Years After. Nobody else does, apparently. (laughs) Played at Woodstock. Check it out, by the way. It was like a big festival thing they did in the late 60s. I know Big Brother and the Holding Company and the Yardbirds because I absolutely love good old-fashioned rock and roll. But as I grew up, and you know, my parents kind of sheltered me when I was a kid, but as I, as I grew up and into my teen years and university years, it dawned on me that there was kind of this rock and roll lifestyle that went along with rock and roll music. Have you ever noticed that? Like the rock music stuff, you listen to it on the radio, hear it on a CD or whatever, and then, and then you start to hear about these guys and their lifestyle. And their lifestyle is not defined by personal holiness typically, is it? It's defined by decadence. It's defined by excess. It's defined by taking things to the very nth degree. I'm gonna share with you uh, just a couple of stories from rock and rollers who took things to the excess, and and, and you're gonna listen to these and go, what in the world is this preacher doing? Like, where is he going this morning? Trust me, stick with me. We'll get there, all right? So here's a couple of stories out of rock and roll where people just took things to excess. Keith Moon drummer from The Who, Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, the whole deal, was famous for blowing up toilets in hotel rooms for no reason. He just loved to blow up toilets. One time, he caused $500,000 worth of damage by blowing up a toilet in a hotel room. One time, he drove a Cadillac into a Holiday Inn pool just for kicks and giggles. A guy named Nicky Six was the bass player for Motley Crue. Anybody a Motley Crue fan? Shame on you. Shame on you! That is no. I'm kidding. <laughs> Nicky Six is the bass player for Motley Crue. Nicky Six once OD'd on heroin in a London flat, and he was with his drug dealer at the time. His drug dealer couldn't wake him up, so he beat him with a baseball bat. Nicky Six didn't wake up. Drug dealer took him out of the flat, dropped him in a dumpster for dead. He woke up in an ambulance where he had flatlined for two minutes. He was literally dead for two whole minutes, no pulse, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. The next day, he woke up in the hospital, pulled all the tubes out of his nose, snuck out of the hospital, and hitchhiked home wearing nothing but leather pants. Got back to the house, continued shooting up heroin, woke up with a syringe in his arm, and subsequently checked into rehab, which he very well should have done. He's sober now, by the way. Speaking of crazy Drug stories, uh, Keith Richards, who you just heard on that track right there, "Satisfaction" by the Rolling Stones, once took uh, the cremated remains of his father and cocaine and mixed them together and snorted them up his nose. That's a true story. Excess, hedonism, decadence, taking things to the nth degree. this is the rock and roll lifestyle. This is sex, drugs and rock and roll. Now now listen very very closely because here's where we're going this morning. No matter what crazy story you've ever heard out of rock and roll, no matter who you've heard talk about somebody or read about it on the internet or watch VH1 behind the music or whatever it is, King Solomon would have put them all to shame. And he wrote a book of the Bible and I'm not kidding. And the book of the Bible that he wrote is actually his journal about his descent into hedonism, into excess. It's just 12 chapters of him writing about his experience of taking things to the nth degree, of experience, anything, experiencing anything and everything that the world has to offer, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and everything else. You see, Solomon was the third king in Israel. The first king was... Saul, and the second king was David, and the third king was Solomon. Solomon was David's son by Bathsheba. If you've never heard that story, David had an affair with another man's wife and got her pregnant and then had her husband killed to kind of conceal it. Didn't really work out for David, by the way. They had one child uh, from that affair, and that child uh, died in infancy, and their second child was Solomon. Now, David reigned for 40 years in Israel, and when he took the reins of the kingdom of Israel, Israel didn't really have boundaries. It was 12 disconnected nomadic tribes. They didn't have an army. They didn't have a capital. They had no money. They had no power. They had no global influence. They had nothing. But in the 40 years that David reigned as king in Israel, he... Established their boundaries. He even increased their boundaries. He rose up, uh, raised up an army. He established their capital in Jerusalem. So wealth and power and influence, everything that a kingdom needed and everything that a king needed in order to pursue hedonism and excess to the nth degree, David handed off to his son Solomon. And before David died, he said to his son Solomon, he said, look, you have one job and one job alone. You need to build God's temple here in Jerusalem. Solomon said, well, I don't really know how to build a temple. David said, no problem. Here are the blueprints. I'll tell you exactly how to do it. Solomon said, well, I don't really have the money to do all that. David said, no problem. I've already raised all the money. I've already collected all the people that you need. So Solomon, over the next seven years after David died and handed him the keys to the kingdom, built God's temple in Jerusalem. And after those seven years, it's almost as if Solomon starts to get bored. I mean, think about it. Solomon's the ultimate trust fund baby, right? I mean, arguably the wealthiest man who ever lived, certainly the wealthiest man on the planet at the time. And he has nothing more to do. He's done all the tasks that he was assigned. He's built everything he's wanted to build. He's he's starting to get a little bored. And there comes a point in Solomon's life where he kind of hits a fork in the road a little bit. He can let his boredom get the best of him and try to kind of self medicate a little bit, or he can follow God and do what's right. Guess what he does? He lets his boredom get the best of him. But before he does that, God shows up and has a little conversation with him and he warns him. And it's in First Kings 9. Don't, don't turn there yet because we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes here in a minute. First Kings 9 is up here on the screen. Look what happened. It says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord. That's He was finished building God's temple and the king's house, that's his own house, and all that Solomon desired to build. So he's done everything that he's wanted to do. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. Now stop there. The text in 1 Kings 9, verse 2 there, refers to a second time. So there has to have been a what? First time. So the first time that God appeared to Solomon, he had a really intimate conversation with him, a personal conversation. And he says to Solomon, look, I'll give you anything you want. One thing, you name it, what's that one thing that you want? And Solomon says, I want wisdom. I want to be able to take my knowledge and experience and add them up and be able to discern what's right in a situation, to discern the right path, to discern the right way to go. And God says, because you made such a noble request and asked for wisdom, not wealth, not power, not influence, not fame. You asked for wisdom. I'm going to give you wisdom and check this out. I'm going to give you all those other things too. I'm going to give you all of those other things too. But here's Solomon, once again, he's gotten a little bored. It's later in his life. And God appears to him a second time and he says, man, I got to warn you now. Because you've got all of these things at your disposal. And if God makes you wise, you've got a lot of wisdom, don't you? And if God gives you wealth, you've got a lot of wealth, don't you? God gives you power. You've got a lot of power. And he begins to get bored. And look what God says to him. It's up here on the screen. It says, And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house that you have built. That's the temple. By putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. But I want to talk to you personally. He says, And as for you, Solomon, if you walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness. David didn't make great decisions all the time, but he did his best. Doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and rules. Then, if you do, those, if you do that thing, then I will establish your royal throne of Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But, but, Solomon. If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. Listen to what God is saying to Solomon. He's saying this Look, buddy, I know you're bored. But if you let the boredom get the best of you, there are going to be consequences. And they're not going to be good. God shows up to Solomon and he warns him. He says, there are going to be consequences. But Solomon is still bored. He still is not content. So Solomon engages in what amounts to the greatest social experiment the world has ever known. He takes all of his resources and all of his wealth, all of his wisdom, all of his power everything he had, and he allocates it towards a relentless pursuit of contentment. He says, I am going to experience everything that this world has to offer in excess, completely hedonistic, completely to the nth degree. Nothing will stop me from a full experience of what this world has to offer." And the book of the Bible that he wrote is just his journal about that experience. Let's put it this way this morning. Solomon endeavors to answer this question. How much is enough? How much is enough? How much sex is enough sex? How much money is enough money? How much power is enough power? How much wine is enough wine? How many houses for yourself? How many buildings, how many possessions, how much is enough? How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of the Tootsie Pop? (laughs) How much is enough? And Solomon takes everything he's got and he allocates it toward a relentless pursuit of contentment. I want you to read Solomon's own words about how he pursues contentment. And so we're going to do that from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, it's uh, about halfway through your Bible. If you open your Bible right to the midpoint, and then you turn just a few sections over towards the right, you'll find Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Side note, Solomon introduces himself in this text as Kohaleth, That means the preacher or one who convenes an assembly. And then in the Greek New Testament, that word is called Ecclesia. It's a gathering, hence the reason the book is titled Ecclesiastes. If you've ever wondered why it's called Ecclesiastes, that's why it's a derivative of the Greek form of the Hebrew word. That's total tangent. That's no charge today. Okay. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Watch what Solomon says of his relentless pursuit of contentment. He says, I said in my heart, in other words, I said to myself, self, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I'm going to test you with pleasure. We're going to see how much is enough. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, just being with people and enjoying myself, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Stop there. (laughs) For some of you who don't like our sex, drugs, and rock and roll title, what's Solomon saying here? I got drunk as a skunk. I pursued intoxication. There's the drugs part. I pursued intoxication to the nth degree. I pursued intoxication to excess. This is Solomon. Keep reading uh, halfway through here. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. In the original language here, this word is rebellion against God. So in other words, I rebelled against God to the nth degree to see if it would give my heart joy, to bring me contentment, to see if I could get enough till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Keep going. I made great works. I built houses. Side note, it took Solomon seven years to build God's house. It took him 13 to build his own. Talk about pursuing excess to the nth degree. And planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. Made myself pools. Now listen close. For which to water the forest of growing trees. How big do his pools have to be to water the forest? Crazy, right? Keep going. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions. I was the wealthiest man on the planet of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Keep going. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers like Mick Jagger and no, Actually, Mick Jagger's right about that age, actually, 3,000 years old. Uh, so it, it, may, it may very well been him. We don't know. Solomon doesn't tell us, okay? This is the rock and roll part. Both men and women and many concubines. I don't have to translate that into original language and tell you what the Hebrew is. Oh, oh, by the way, Solomon had 300 of them. He had 700 wives, too. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm having a problem with the one I got right now, and that's just one. <laughs> actually, she she has... After that comment, I'll have even more problems than I, than I do. Side of the point. The delight of the sons of men. Verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. When he's saying I became great, what is he saying? He's saying I was winning at life. Every victory, every accolade. Everything that I put my eyes to, put my mind to, I succeeded and I pursued excess, everything that this world has to offer to the nth degree. You want to know how far he pursued it? how far he pursued hedonism, how far he pursued pleasure. This, to me, is the craziest verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. Watch what Solomon says. He says, I, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Other translations of Scripture say this, I denied myself nothing that I wanted. Can you believe this? No matter what Solomon wanted, he took it. And it's funny, for you and me, like, we can't actually do this because there are restrictions on us, aren't there? Like, if you really, really want something, you might be restricted by resources. You might not have enough money to get it. Like, I really want a 70s muscle car, you know what I mean? Like, a, like an old like Chevy SS or a Camaro. If anyone's looking to offload one, please let me know. I will give you 10 US dollars for it, okay? You would never take that deal. Why? Because it's not enough money. See, I'm restricted by resources. I can't get everything that I want. I have to deny myself something because I don't have enough resources to do it. See, Solomon wasn't there. He's the wealthiest man on the planet. He can buy whatever he wants to buy. Well, what if... What if, like, okay, I'm I could, I, I'm restricted by resources. Like, I can't get that muscle car, but, but maybe I'll steal it. What's going to restrict me at that point? The police, right? Like, the law is going to restrict me. Well, l- listen close now. Solomon's king. He is the law. Law's not going to restrict him. Or even if I stole something, even if I didn't get caught, it would weigh heavily on my conscience. But Solomon had so seared his conscience and pursued things to the nth degree that even his conscience did not restrict him. He took it to excess sex, drugs, rock and roll. He put Keith Richards and Nikki Six and Ozzy Osbourne and everybody else to shame. He, he denied himself. Nothing his eyes desired, and he had every resource to do it. Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters of Solomon talking about that experience. It's like, it's like Bill Gates and Hugh Hefner and like Hunter S. Thompson, if you know who that is, combined all together and simultaneously Pope and president, this is Solomon. I mean, this is absolutely bananas. So, if you know anything, if you know anything about the Bible, or like about Christianity, or about God, anything like that, you might be asking yourself a very simple question, and it's up here on the screen. Look up here. Why in the world does God put this in the Bible? Do you know what I mean? Like, why in the world? Do, 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 nod your head if you understand why I'm asking this question. Why does God put this in his holy, sacred word? This is the holy writ of God. Why would he put that in there? Like, here's, here's, here's the thing that we believe here at Bayview Glen Church and Orthodox Christianity in general and Christianity throughout the ages. That, that the Bible, that book you hold in your hand, is inspired By God. It's put together to teach us something, to teach us about ourselves, to teach us about God, to help us to walk with Him. So, why would He put a journal about hedonism in there? Don't you think an all powerful God would say at some point in human history, let's just pull the plug on that one? I think we just eliminate that bad boy from it. Okay? So, as we interpret, As we understand, as we study the book of Ecclesiastes for the next four weeks, here's one principle that might help you, not just in Ecclesiastes, but in the rest of the scripture, okay? Look up here on the screen. Ecclesiastes is descriptive, not prescriptive. For those of you who know what these words mean, this is funny. So laugh uncomfortably. Perfect. You did it. It was great. Perfect. Here's what's happening in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Solomon is describing his experience. He's not prescribing that you do it too. He is telling us what happens. He's not telling us to do stuff. Like, I know why the Gospels are in the Scriptures. We need to know about Jesus. I know why the letters from the apostles in the early church, I know why they're in the Bible. We need to be encouraged and exhorted to walk worthy of the manner that we were called. I know why Genesis is in there. Even some of the obscure stuff, Leviticus and Numbers, I know why that's in there. Here's one reason that Ecclesiastes is not in the Bible. So that you could say, I am going to take what Solomon did, and I'm going to do it too. Like, we have to be very, very clear about this, because I could just imagine somebody walking out of Bayview Glen this morning going, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe what this pastor told me to do. This is the best church ever. This is craziness. Like, he told me to pursue hedonism to the nth degree. No. Solomon is describing to us his experience. He is not prescribing that we do it too. But here's what happens is that along the way, Solomon learned a lot about contentment. Primarily because he never experienced it himself. He never experienced it himself. In fact, after all was said and done, after he pursued hedonism to the nth degree and excess and sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all that stuff we just read about in Ecclesiastes 2, here's how he opens his journal. Look up here on the screen. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity. Like this word vanity in modern times means like someone stands before the mirror and primps a lot, right? They're a vain person, vanity. Let's understand it in the original language because it's got a lot more meaning in the original language. The, the original Hebrew here, vanity, is the word habel. And in 12 chapters, Solomon uses this word 38 times. 38 times everything that I pursued, it's chabel. It's this Hebrew word translated vanity. How many of you have a, a Bible translation open in front of you and it's translated as meaningless? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless, right? Okay. A, a, a real good word to, to translate Hebel into into modern language would be absurd. It's all absurd. It's comical. I, I pursued it to the nth degree and I gained Nothing. In fact, this word chabel, it's funny because it's also the word for breath or vapor. Solomon says, everything I try to do in terms of acquiring, in terms of experiencing, in terms of intoxication, sex, drugs, and rock and roll to the nth degree, it's like your breath on a winter day. Gone. I mean, the whole theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, if you just want to sum it up, is life is short and then you die. And then people forget about you. That's the the summary of Ecclesiastes. It's a very cynical little book. (laughs) But what Solomon wants us to know is that I experienced everything the world has to offer. And and, 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 and he, he helps us to see that there is a secret to being content. His journal, Ecclesiastes, helps us to see the secret of contentment, and the way that he does that is through stark contrast. To take, take two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, any kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, black, white, light, dark, left, right, whatever, whatever opposite ends of the spectrum you want to take, okay? And he says... I pursued contentment, joy, and fulfillment all the way over to this side. I spent my entire life doing it. I spent money, time, all my smarts, everything I could allocate towards a pursuit of contentment on this side of the spectrum. And here's what I can tell you, that this other side of the spectrum is far better than that side. Ecclesiastes tells us the secret of contentment, and it does so through stark contrast. So here's what we're going to do with just our time remaining this morning and then with our next three weeks. Over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about three of those stark contrasts that Solomon presents to us in his journal of hedonism, unbridled hedonism. And so with our time remaining this morning, I just want to tell you what those three contrasts are And then we'll unpack them more and more over the next three weeks. Does that sound good? Okay, great. So if you're taking notes, here's contrast number one that Solomon wants us to know. Contentment is found in people, not things. Contentment is found in people, not things. Solomon talks all about uh, someone who falls down in Ecclesiastes. And if no one is there to pick him up, he says, woe to that man. That's that's a bummer. That's a bummer of bummers, so to speak. Hmm. But for those who have someone to pick them up, for those who have relationships, for those who have support, that's where true contentment is found. Solomon says, look, everything I ever wanted, I got. All the sex, all the money, all the power, all the influence, all the homes, everything I ever wanted. But as I pursued things, I lost my appetite for people, and I never found contentment. Because contentment is found here, not here. It's funny because these principles, they're not, you know, this book's written 3,000 years ago. It's like a thousand years before Jesus even showed up on the planet. But we still still see these principles work themselves out in modernity. A couple weeks ago, I was watching um, Michael Jordan's a speech when he was inducted into the National Basketball Hall of Fame. For those of you who don't know who Michael Jordan is, some some of you are going, I know who Michael Jordan is. Some of you may not know who he is. Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player who's ever lived. You can have LeBron, you can have your Kobe. If I'm building a team, I take Mike. I call him Mike because we have a personal relationship. Okay? Mike, MJ, whatever. We'll shoot him a text afterwards, beside the point. Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player who ever lived and a fierce, fierce competitor. But it's kind of public knowledge that Mike wasn't a lot of fun to be around during his career because he placed things above people. And again, it kind of came to a head when he was inducted into the National Basketball Hall of Fame because there were two guys that spoke before him, also inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. Those two guys were John Stockton and David Robinson. And John Stockton and David Robinson are deeply religious men. They're committed to their families. They're committed to giving back to their community. They live pretty simple lives. David Robinson in San Antonio and John Stockton in Washington State. They spend their lives hanging out with their families and their spouse, again, giving back to the community, starting not-for-profit organizations and charter schools. John Stockton scrimmages a lot with Gonzaga University. And so when they got up and spoke, they gushed over their kids. They teared up when they talked about those who had supported them throughout their career and going, these coaches, these owners, these, these players that I played with, I would not be here if it wasn't for them. David Robinson and John Stockton also had a really easy time transitioning out of professional sports and into retirement because, you know, it was always all about people, and when they got out of professional sports, they still had those same people around them. But then Michael Jordan got up to speak, and instead of gushing over his children I kid you not, Michael Jordan looked at his children in the audience and he says, I don't envy you because you have to live your life in the shadow of your father. That must be tough. Ew. And instead of thanking owners and players and coaches, he actually took shots at a few of them. He looked at the guy who was his college roommate. It is a guy who made the high school basketball team when Michael Jordan didn't make the high school basketball team. He looked at him. He was sitting in the audience, and he said, I told you so. I told you I should have been on that team, and today proves that. Why? Because Michael Jordan valued winning above people. He valued things above people. Trophies, accolades, recognition, fame, whatever it was that drove him winning, really. If Solomon could whisper in Michael Jordan's ear today, he would say, Friend, you'll never find contentment in those trophies. What are they doing now? Collecting dust. Just little dust collectors on your shelf, just more to clean. Solomon would say, you think you had accolades? You think you had power? You think you won at life? I won everything. And it still was not enough. Contrast number two. Contrast number two that Solomon wants us to see in his journal of unbridled hedonism, this book of Ecclesiastes, is that contentment is not found in just a little more stuff, but in more little stuff. Contentment is not found in just a little more stuff, but in just more little stuff. It's interesting because Solomon did not start with 700 wives and 300 concubines. (laughs) Like there wasn't like a mass commitment ceremony, right, where everyone took vows. He started with one, and then one wasn't enough. And then he got another one. And he got another one. He got another one. And then another one. He had a lot of power when he became king in Israel, but it just wasn't enough. He just needed just a little bit more, and just a little bit more, and just a little bit more. And maybe it took the edge off for a time. Maybe it made him happy for an instant, but it didn't last. And then what did he need? Just a little more. Just a little more. For most of Solomon's life, if you would have asked him that question, how much is enough? Solomon would say, just a little more. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know where the ceiling is. I don't know where it ends. All I know is I need more than I've got now. To be frank, I think, this is my personal opinion, that this is the primary problem in that rock and roll lifestyle. It's the primary problem in that Hollywood lifestyle is that people think just a little more will make me happy. Just a little more will bring me contentment. Just one more movie, just one more hit record, just one more platinum album, just one more million dollars or one more success or one more trophy or one more Grammy. Just a little more drugs, just a little more sex, just a little more this, just a little more that, just a little more fame, just a little more popularity. And instead of enjoying the little things in life and finding contentment in the small things that bring us joy, it's a relentless pursuit of just a little more, just a little more, just a little more. And then you get stories like Chris Farley, River Phoenix, Prince, Keith Moon, who we just talked about, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin. You can name a bunch on your own, can't you? Heath Ledger, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Should we keep going? It's just a little more. Cory Monteith. Just a little more, just a little more, just a little more. And if Solomon could whisper in their ear today, he would say, it's not found in just a little more. It's found in enjoying the little things in life. It's the small things that bring you contentment, not just a little more. It's the small things like seeing a hummingbird in your backyard land. You ever seen that before? A bird that's like in constant motion and going crazy all the time. And all of a sudden, it stops and is still for just a minute, and you're just mesmerized. See, that's where contentment is found. It's running out of propane, and your steak is cooked perfectly. That's where contentment is found. It's at the end of a long day of work, having been productive and done your best. That's where true contentment and joy is found. See, if Solomon could have whispered in their ear, he said. say, It's not going to be found in just a little more. It's going to be found in just more little stuff. Contrast number three, and we'll stop here. Four weeks from now, actually three weeks from now, here's what we're going to be talking about. Contentment is found beyond the sun, not under the sun. Twelve chapters in Ecclesiastes, and Solomon uses this phrase, under the sun, almost 30 times. He wants to be very, very clear that his pursuit of contentment, his pursuit of lasting joy was all conducted where? Under the sun. Here on this earth, in the here and now, in things that are temporary, in things that you can taste and touch and see and hear, all under the sun. And if you can't find contentment under the sun, where must you look for contentment? Beyond. Beyond the sun. To the divine. To something bigger than you. To something greater than you. It's interesting because one of Jesus' earliest followers, a guy named Paul, uh, changed his name from Saul to Paul, wrote most of the New Testament, talked about this same principle He says in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret of contentment. That same secret that Solomon talked about a thousand years ago in Ecclesiastes, I've learned that same secret. I know how to be content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And this is what he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a pretty popular verse these days, Philippians 4.13. People put it on their eye black before football games and they write it on their shoes before basketball games. That all things that Paul is talking about in Philippians 4.13, it's not I can do all things like throw the football 50 yards or dunk over that guy or get the winning hit. Paul says there's something far more difficult than that and it's true lasting contentment and the only way you can experience it is by Jesus in you, God in you, something beyond the sun. Now Paul and Solomon Learned the same secret, that contentment is not found here in this earth. It's found in the life to come. It's found in the divine. It's found in a touch from God. It's found beyond the sun. But here's the difference between Paul and Solomon. Paul learned it early. Paul learned it early. And so he spent his life experiencing contentment rather than pursuing contentment. Do you see it? And at the end of Solomon's life, what did he have? Joy, contentment, fulfillment? Nope. Shame and regret. Having looked back on a life and said, I pursued it to the nth degree and it never really made me happy. This is the book of Ecclesiastes and this is where we're going to be spending our time for the next three weeks. In these three contrasts, understanding and experiencing true, lasting contentment together. And and hopefully, learning from someone else's mistakes (laughs) rather than making our own. Does that sound good? Good. So as we close, I want to ask you one quick question. How much is enough for you? How much is enough for you? Again, we talked about this a moment ago. For some of you, this may be your first time in church in a while. You may be kind of occasional attenders here. And you may be pursuing contentment outside of God's plan for you. You may be pursuing contentment in the things of the world, under the sun, as Solomon would say. So when is it going to be enough? We've talked about uh, today and this morning, What Solomon might whisper in Michael Jordan's ear? What Solomon might whisper in Hollywood's ear or in the ear of rock and roll? What might he whisper in our ear today? How much is enough? Here's what Solomon would say. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Every river, every stream, every little creek, It's all dumped into the sea, and it's covering two-thirds of the earth's, earth's surface, by the way. And it's never been full, and it never will be. Solomon is saying to you and me, he's using an illustration from nature, he's saying no matter what stream you want to tap into, no matter what creek you want to tap into, no matter what river you want to tap into, you can tap into multiples if you want, you can tap into all of them if you want, and they're going to dump it into your life and dump things into your life and dump things into your life. Sex, money, power, wealth, fame, accolades, winning, no matter what it is, and guess what? Never be full. So the invitation is the, from the book of Ecclesiastes is to find contentment and experience contentment outside of ourselves. And a God who loves us and has given us great gifts here in this life that we can experience such that they point us to him. This is the invitation of Ecclesiastes. Can we pray together? If you would just bow your head and maybe kind of close your eyes to block out distractions. We've said it before, but that's not the biblical posture of prayer, but just maybe between you and God for a moment, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, if you're brand new to this faith thing, if you've been walking with God for a really long time, my invitation to you this morning is to ask yourself, That really critical question how much is going to be enough? How much is enough? Because God comes along and He says, I am enough. You'll never find enough elsewhere. That sea will never be full. But you can find it in me. I am enough. And you may be thinking to yourself, and that's fine, that preacher is crazy. 3,000 years ago, Solomon is crazy. 2,000 years ago, Paul is crazy. Like, God is enough? Really? And if you think that, That's okay. You and I disagree, but that's okay. So here's what I want to invite you to. I am not going to invite you to convert to Christianity today. I'm not going to invite you to commit your life to missions in Africa today. All I want to invite you today is to just surrender your doubt just for a moment. Surrender your unbelief just for a moment say, okay, God, maybe, maybe you know more about contentment than I do. Maybe. So just for a moment, I surrender. And I love it. If you're real, if you're there, if you care about me, just speak to me about what it means that you Would be enough and my life would be full. So, God, we trust you today and we love you today. We don't always live like you're enough. But, God, for those in this room that follow Jesus and know you, we know that you're enough in our head and in our heart. We know. We know that you're enough. Sometimes we forget. So would you be our reminder today? God, for some in this room, they've never experienced what it means for you to be enough. And so we pray for those, God, that you would in your grace and in your mercy, your tenderness, in the way that only you can do, speak to kind of their inner self so that they may know that you're enough. odd as it is, thank you for including Ecclesiastes in your Bible so that we might be able to learn from someone else's mistakes. And we might be reminded today, even if we got everything we ever wanted, we still wouldn't be content. Contentment is found only in you. Thanks for reminding us. In Christ's name, the people of God said... I don't know about you, but sometimes I sing songs in church or we play songs here on a Sunday morning that I'm like, I can't sing that. Like, that's not true of me. One of them is a hymn that I love very much. It's called I Surrender All. You know that song? It's like, I Surrender All. Really? Like, I could just see Jesus as I sing, I surrender all. Jesus going, no, you don't. You'd like to, but you don't. Your unbelief, your doubt, your inhibitions, your private thought life, your emotions and affections, your diet and exercise patterns. Really? You You surrender all? Your time management? You surrender all of that? Okay, <laughs> maybe not. So here would be my invitation to us this morning. As we sing, I surrender all, let it be a song of aspiration. Let it be a song of hope. Let it be, God, I'd really like to. My desire today is that you would walk me towards what it means to be totally and completely surrendered to you. Such that you might be enough. Sound good? Let's stand and sing.